Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Today's episode is brought to you by Deloitte Digital. Stay tuned after the podcast for insights on elevating the human experience. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. Uh, and we've got uh, – we're all in the same place for once. This I – don't, I don't know. Hopefully the magic of audio hides this fact that we're never all in the same place. So this is super fun. We're all in one room together. Uh, and who is in the room with me? We've got Nicole Ortiz, uh, who is the community editor here at Adweek. She oversees our opinion contributions, among many other things. Nicole, it's so great to have you. Hi. Thanks for having me. And we've got Sarah Jurdy, who is a uh, – well, wait. You have a new title. Yes, I do. Tell us about your new title. Uh, my new title is publishing editor. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, which, so define publishing in 2019 for us. Um, so I cover, continue to cover the business of media news organizations, how everyone is staying afloat and what that looks like going into 2020. Yeah. So it's a mix of magazines, digital publishers, a little of everybody. Podcasts, so. yeah. Very well-earned promotion for Sarah. She has been uh, covering this beat for a while uh, here at Adweek, and it's just been stellar. So congratulations. Thanks. It's very well-deserved. Jason Lynch, our TV editor uh, and all-around TV genius. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I learn so much every time you're on. Thanks for joining us again. Of course. Happy to be back. And we have gathered this. Uh, group of awesome intellectual giants because we've got our hot list, uh, which is actually three different lists. Every year, Adweek, uh, we have a, you know, to, we've done this different ways in the past. We've we've had voting, you know, we, we've had open voting, we've had our editors just pick it. Um, and how did we do it this year? It's all a blur now. How did, did we, did we have voting? We did not. We, yeah. we we are the authorities on what is hot and what is not. This Sweet. Year. Good. <laughs> it is by fiat. We are just going to describe. No, and so it's been interesting because I think part of the problem is that when you open it up to voting, especially with things like TV shows, Jason might be able to vouch for, you tend to get some very devoted fan bases. Yep. <clears throat> who can, uh, to put it politely, flood your voting. And so it was like Outlander is the one I always think of, which I'm sure it's a fine show. I've not watched <laughs> Outlander, but I can say that it has a very passionate 
audience that will come in and vote like crazy if you have any voting. Truly. So we have uh, we break up the hot list into three lists. Uh, We have publishing or publishers and uh, digital and TV. Uh, which, of course, includes streaming uh, these days. So we're going to talk about each of those, about who made the cut and uh, why and who we featured. And we're also – we've got a few individuals that are in the hot list every year. And, of course, you can find all this in this week's issue of Adweek or on adweek.com. But all right. It's time to get into it. Jason, I don't know. Let's start with TV. Um, the – you know, this is such a fascinating space, and I think we – what I loved about this issue is we cover uh, some kind of the legacy of TV and of who is – how it's still manifesting. Uh, and and then, of course, we cover some of the hottest of what's happening and what's coming out right now. But tell us who's on the cover because I think it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, it, 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 this is an interesting year because we, we usually put our media visionary on the cover, and the media visionary for the hot list is – Usually, it's almost like a Lifetime Achievement Award. It's somebody who has been relevant throughout the decades. Ellen DeGeneres, we honored last year. Martha Stewart, the year before. And and this year, uh, we, we made a, a bit of a surprising choice, and that was to put uh, the three executive producers of Friends on the cover. Uh, the Marta, hottest new show of 2019. Yes, Marta Kaufman, David Crane, and, and Kevin Bright. And I will say, even before we decided to put them on the cover, we gave serious thought to um, to naming Friends the hottest comedy of the year because in a lot of ways it is. <laughs> um, even though it came out 25 years ago, um, it is arguably as popular now as it was back then. Uh, you know, I'm sure a, a lot of our, our listeners have, have, have been hearing a lot about the 25th anniversary, and there was just this slew of, of different marketing that was tied to that. There was a, a wildly successful pop-up in New York, Friends Pop-Up, uh, with the Central Perk uh, set there. There was a limited-edition Pottery Barn set that sold out very quickly. There were other brand partnerships with um, Coffee and Bean and, and a few others that um, were also just incredibly successful. And you know, as we found out from Nielsen last year, uh, Friends was the Number two most streamed show on Netflix, and also is going to be or is going to be leaving Netflix at the end of the year, and it's going to be the cornerstone of Warner Media's new streaming service, HBO Max. And this is a show that, if you had told me 25 years ago, if you had said, "Okay, in the time Seinfeld's there, Cheers is there," you know, what's going to be the show that we're all still going to be going crazy over 25 years from now? I probably would have said Seinfeld. And um, you know, even though I really liked Friends, but this is a show that has you know, found a new generation on streaming. Marta Kaufman talks about the fact that her daughter has friends in high school who thought it was a new Netflix show that just happened to be a period piece set in the 90s, much like Stranger Things is in the 80s. So this is something that has, um, you know, just found this new life on streaming and and engaged a uh, a new group of of fans. So so we recognized uh, those three executive producers for kind of having the vision to create a show that, um, you know, is still as relevant, you know, 25 years uh, down the line as, as it was back then. And that I cannot think of, of another show that um, you would say like kind of the pop culture impact is almost equal to what it was back in its heyday. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess they didn't like produce Friends and then just drop out of Hollywood altogether. What what, what kind of stuff have they been doing? No, they so? didn't, and, and and they've all they've all done um, they've all done some interesting things. Marta Kaufman has done um, Grace and Frankie, which is another Netflix show, mm-hmm. and you know they they've all had kind of minor successes. 
nothing that measures up to Friends, certainly, and, and certainly in their legacy. But it was really interesting in this cover, um, which was written by our streaming editor, Kelsey Sutton, to kind of just walk, go back down memory lane with them and, you know, and even have them, you know, when they heard Netflix had picked it up, they were just like, oh, that, that, that's good. That'll, that'll, that's just a nice new, you know, it's like same thing as syndication to them. They had no idea how big it was going to become. Um, and it was fun to hear them look back. And the one thing that was interesting to me is, especially for Adweek readers, is um, in season two, they uh, the whole cast participated in this Diet Coke campaign, which kind of helped um, start a, a big backlash against the show. And and they the producers actually told us that's like their one big regret from all the, the decade of doing the show was participating in that campaign even though the money was great uh, and they were uh, they were involved in writing it but but that was uh, that just ended up backfiring in a big way mm-hmm. but they were able to kind of persevere and 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 you know steer the show for um, many more successful seasons after that Nicole and Sarah I'm curious what is your experience with friends like <clears throat> a do you like it I mean are you into it and B if so how did you discover it um, well, I'm actually one of the few people who has never seen a single episode of Friends. Nice. Um, and I, well, that's not true. I've seen a few episodes. Um, it just never did it for me. I was always more, I feel like when I was growing up, it was either Friends or Boy Meets World at my school. And I always chose Boy Meets World. I still do. Um, I <laughs> rewatched the whole series like a few years ago when they were doing Girl Meets World. I love I like follow all of them on Instagram. So I just, I could never get super into friends, but I have a lot of my friends who are really into it and they're like all excited about all of the pop-ups. They've been following everything. They've been going to like, I don't know, buying more friends paraphernalia, I guess. And uh, I am just not that person though. Sarah? (laughs) Um, My friend used to be really obsessed and had the DVD set. Um, of all of the different episodes. But I always grew up thinking it was one of those shows that you just, like, fall asleep to in the background. Like, it's not something you really need to be watching <laughs> actively, just something you could kind of chill out and put in the background while you get some work done. I don't know. So we're not the demographic, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's funny you say that because I have a funny story about that. And I was literally about to say this. Um, when I worked at an ad agency, I guess, like, 10 years ago, um, and I had a team of maybe six or seven. It was it was uh, all women uh, that worked with it. I, was, I think I was the only guy. And one day we started talking about Friends. And it had obviously been off the air for quite a while. And one of them mentioned, well, I, I watch it every night to go to sleep. And I was like, what, like literally every night? She's like, yeah, every night. And this was on DVD. It wasn't streaming. And so she would put in a DVD, and I was like, and your your husband's cool with it? He's like, oh, yeah. I mean, it was part of the deal. Like, when he married me, it's like, I watch this every single night to go to sleep. And then the, the woman next to her was like, me too. And then the other was like, yep, me, me as well. Turned out every single person in that room except me <laughs> watched so Friends to go to sleep every night because it was just like their comfort food. And it was just yeah. – uh, for me, the idea of having a TV on when you're trying to go to sleep is, is uh, like it would drive me nuts. But yeah, same. but that's – so it's funny you say that that's like the thing is there's just something comforting about it. I mean is yeah. that what makes Friends so enduring just- um, I think that that is part of it. I mean, the idea is that, yes, aside from, you know, the cell phones and some of the, you know, it, it does seem timeless in a lot of ways. And and I think that regardless of what generation you are, everyone can kind of relate to that idea of like, 
you're kind of becoming an adult, but you're not really sure what that means. And you have this group of friends to kind of help you along the way. So um, it is, you know, there there is a timelessness to it in a way that maybe like we didn't think about it at the time. And and really since that the show came out. Networks have desperately been trying to recreate that concept. I mean, uh, certainly famously, the last, uh, the first couple of years after that was a hit, there were just show after show of like six, 20 somethings, you know, in a city trying to become, you know, trying to hang out together. And uh, very few of them succeeded, if, if any. And, and you still, you still get a lot of that today. And it was just this kind of magic formula. It was the right cast, it was the right creators. They also meant, you know, it was one of those rare shows that that even though almost everybody in that cast, you know, took off and had big movie careers, they all stayed on the show. Nobody left early. They they negotiated their um, salary bumps as a group. They were the first kind of cast to do that, and it was uh, they really stuck together. I mean, just look this this week alone, how many people are going nuts over Jennifer Aniston, you know, her joining Instagram mm-hmm. with a photo of the cast together for the first time in a long time, and and uh, it is just there there is a love for that show that um, I really haven't seen replicated, and um, and and many other kind of pop culture touchstones. My, my first exposure to Friends, I was in college from 95 to 99, and sh- Friends came out, what, 94, right? Uh, the, it would be 93. 93. So, like, I had not watched it because I was, you know, a senior in high school or whatever. I wasn't really watching that much TV. And then I go to college, and I'll never forget I lived in the dorms, and I, I went to, you know, get, like, a late dinner and then when I'm walking back to my to the elevators, I walk through the TV lounge, which is like a big open room on your way to the elevators, and there are 200 women in pajamas all sitting there staring. At, and I had never seen more than three people in that lounge, and they are all just staring intently at this screen, watching Friends. And that and I knew it existed, like I had heard it talked about, but it was only in its probably second or third season. And that's the moment I realized, like, oh, oh, this is a phenomenon. Yeah. This is not. Like just another show, which to me I was like, yeah, well, it's just a show. I'm, I'm going to correct myself. I said 93 before. It was actually it was actually 94. I had a similar experience in college. I was in these college apartments, and um, I while the opening credits were on, I decided to like go dump my trash. And as I walked down the hallway, literally every door I could hear the Friends theme song blaring <laughs> as everybody was watching it at the same time. All right, so we have covered the the hottest show of uh, 1994. Uh, <laughs> what uh, what else on the hot list? From the TV side, what's like a big, big hot show? This yeah, year? I'll say. Well, I'll, I'll say the the other kind of big on the TV side. Uh, the other big honors we had: we had TV Executive of the Year, um, which is Netflix's Cindy Holland, and certainly as you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast before. I mean, Netflix is single handedly changed the industry, and everybody is now positioning themselves against Netflix. So uh, it was kind of long overdue to recognize a Netflix exec. Um, we, uh, they just had a uh, um, earnings release. And they've talked about how they are spending fifteen billion dollars on content this year. So she has a lot to oversee. So we, uh, she, she was our TV executive of the year. And then on the TV creator year, uh, our TV creator of the year this year was Chuck Lorre, who is somebody who is even though everybody is obsessed with streaming, um, is showing that it is still possible to be very successful in broadcast. He had the Big Bang Theory that ended its run in May, and that was the the most watched comedy on TV. He has four shows currently right now, uh, the Big Bang prequel, Young Sheldon, um, a new CBS sitcom called Bob Hart's Abishola, Mom on CBS, and then he has a Netflix show as well, The Kaminsky Method. But at this time where everybody is 
suddenly kind of leaving broadcast for streaming, he is showing that it's still really possible to connect with audiences on broadcast the same way that people had for decades. Uh, and then as far as, uh, as as the other big uh, TV awards, uh, show of the year for this year was Game of Thrones. Um, now we're not saying best show of the year, we're saying <laughs> hottest show of the year. I mean, a lot of people- Most show of a the lot, year. A lot of people, myself included, were very disappointed by kind of how, how the season ended. But that said, it was still the biggest thing that happened this year. HBO told us that 45.9 million viewers watched the show's eighth and final season. More than 100 brands collaborated with the oh, show yeah, this yeah. year. Uh, so even, you know, no matter what you felt about the show, you couldn't escape it. And certainly the the Game of Thrones, but like commercial, was one of the Super Bowl highlights. Number so, one per ad yeah. week's uh, top five yes. ads of the Super Bowl. So, so that and then um, just quickly, hottest drama and hottest comedy, hottest drama, This Is Us, which we've, we've given it before. Now, a lot of times these kind of freshman breakouts, they're big that first year, then they fade. Think about Empire. Think about Good Doctor. This is a show that broke out and um, and has still kind of consistently been the the most watched drama on TV. Um, people have, have stuck with it as we go into the fourth season right now. NBC just gave it a three-year pickup Holy at God. the upfront. So uh, so it is still, it, it is much rarer to not only be a freshman hit or a, a freshman broadcast hit, but then to sustain that. And This Is Us has managed to do that. And then on uh, kind of the opposite side of the spectrum. Yeah, I'm going to tell you right now, if Hottest Comedy is not Fleabag, I'm tipping over this table. Hottest, <laughs> well, the, you don't have to tip over the, the, the table because it is Fleabag. Um, you know, so, and, and, that, and that was hot for a completely different reason. Uh, you know, first off, uh, this this very tiny show. I loved season one, but but it didn't become the phenomenon that season two did. And everybody talking about hot priest all summer long. <laughs> um, you know, she she deservedly uh, cleaned up at the uh, at the Emmys, uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge, and and it, it was a show that while it was not kind of the most the most watched comedy of the year, I think it was a show that really just kind of grabbed the zeitgeist, zeitgeist in a way that n- none other did. And uh, and again, it just showed that this is a perfect example of a show that broadcast wouldn't know what to do with and probably cable wouldn't know what to do with either. I don't and, think it, I can't imagine a broadcast universe in which that show no. works. Uh, you know what what I love about Fleabag is it's the one and it's one of many that you could cite is that whenever you hear the kind of broy argument of like you just can't make a joke anymore, people get so offended. And like I'm just like are you watching comedy? Cuz it is edgier than ever. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. funnier than ever. It's just you can't make the same lazy stereotype based jokes yeah. and like and build an entire comedy around that. And People act like the 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 guys who did uh, act like oh it's the end of the universe. It's like yeah, there's actually we're in a golden age of comedies right mm-hmm. now. And Fleabag's the one I always think of. It's like can't get a whole lot edgier than that show. Have you guys watched it? Or you, mm-hmm. you know I just it? started watching it. I just got to episode two of season two, like literally last night. So I've met the hot priest. Um, that's it's great. <laughs> you know, the show's funny. So I'm excited to see the rest of the season because I actually I thought season one was good, but I wasn't like I was kind of confused about like why it was getting all these this recognition. I was like, this is what got all the awards and everything. And then I realized there was a second season and like one episode in, I was like, oh, OK, I get it now. Yeah, It felt a bit art, art, uh, art housey, but that's a weird thing to say about a show that's like so kind of self-referential about its, you know, very sexual humor. But it it did. It felt like I didn't watch it first because the kind of people who who were talking about it are the kind of people who like stuff that I'm usually like not fancy enough to enjoy. And then I started watching. I was like, oh, no, this is in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I love, yeah, yeah totally. 
Um, who else we have, like big shows? Uh, well, I think the only other thing I'll mention on the TV side is because you were talking about how this is kind of a golden age for comedy is that um, we named Hulu um, the hottest uh, network for comedy. And that's because they all, they had a trio of freshman shows uh, that were all kind of very groundbreaking and, and, and had this 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 great voice, uh, Shrill and Rami and um, Pen15. And, you know, those are all, you know, while, while those are not maybe quite as great as, as Fleabag, they're only kind of one level below. And um, and it is something you know. Certainly, I think the, the streaming services have been able to kind of crack comedy in a way that um, that a lot of other people have struggled to. You know, on the broadcast side, NBC just has has uh, kind of pulled the plug on Sunnyside, which is a comedy that it was kind of hoping was going to um, help fortify its Thursday night lineup. And comedy is really tough. But um, you know these streamers are showing a way to uh, you know to, to kind of nurture new new voices, and it's been it's been terrific to see. Mm-hmm. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about publishing and digital, which are kind of blurry anyway. So those will be good, two good lists, and we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Deloitte Digital. Stay tuned as Amelia Dunlop, head of customer strategy and applied design, Deloitte Digital, explains how brands today are making human connections and building loyalty. All right, we're back. Uh, we still got two categories to talk about. We'll probably move a little quicker through some of these, but uh, I mean, obviously, print is dead. Magazine journalism is dead. So we'll move pretty quickly. <laughs> why are we publishing. here? Yeah, why, <laughs> we haven't been paid in six months. <laughs> Just voluntarily show up. That's a joke. Uh, <laughs> it's only been three. Um, so, uh, Sarah, Sarah, tell us uh, about um, well, in terms of people, who did we mm-hmm. include on the publishing hot list this year? Um, so for Publisher of the Year, we gave it to Meredith Copet-Levin of the New York Times. Um, I think what's important to note there is as we see these media companies diversify revenue streams and you know touch different points of the industry, the New York Times has um, a TV show based on the podcast The Daily. It has The Daily. It has a huge podcasting arm overall. So as the New York Times diversifies outside of just the newspaper um, – someone has to lead that. And so it's been really great to see the growth uh, from the times there and even even better to be able to award it to Meredith this year. Outside of Publisher of the Year, our other big category is editor. And that year, or this year, went to Jessica Pels, who's editor of Cosmo, which is kind of a non-traditional person to give it to, I think, for us. But what's really interesting about what she's been able to do at Cosmo is the print version of the magazine looks exactly like the online version in that when you're opening it, it really feels like you're just looking at stuff that's online and the way she's packaged it and the way she's written it, the headlines. It, it really feels like an Internet experience kind of synthesized in print. And she's really leading the way at Hearst in terms of using data as, at, as many points as she possibly can and integrating that into their coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's really been doing some interesting stuff. I feel like New York Times, not to go back one, but yeah. it's it's been such a weirdly up and down year for them, right? Like they've done some of the best content out there and they've also done – Questionable. Yeah. They're just decisions. like every every month or so they do something and it's usually just airing on the side of sharing both sides and making room for both sides. But it's – you know, full transparency, I canceled my subscription this year for the first time and – in several years, I've, I've been a subscriber for quite a while. I just switched it to the Washington Post um, because a lot of what I was looking for, I could get from there as well. But it's it's like I'm still a supporter. I still read it. But but they've also been peeling stuff off of their subscriptions. And, of course, this is not – I'm not – this mm-hmm. is judgment. It's just kind of interesting to me. Like 
I don't love their curation of the opinion section, but that's, you mm-hmm. know, that's a somewhat common complaint. Uh, but like they took, I, I even joked when someone would ask, is it worth subscribing? And I would say, uh, I love the recipes. Yeah. And I get access to the recipes because you don't get you don't get the crossword puzzle. Like mm-hmm. when you subscribe, you get the recipes and you get the articles. And I use the recipes quite a bit. Then they took off the recipes, and I was like, "Guys, come on, mm-hmm. it's my one thing." Well, yeah. it's funny you say that because there are um, as they've sort of peeled away some of those offerings from your traditional subscription, like the cooking app and the games. Um, each of those services have hundreds and thousands of subscribers outside of what they do on the news side of things. So they've really been able to capture an audience there, whether or not you enjoy their journalism, which I, th- I think is an interesting point to make. Um, was there something that happened editorially that made you decide to cancel your subscription when you did? It was probably the Brett Stevens stuff. Uh, again, if I'm just being fully transparent, um, the you know and we don't need to kind of go back down that road of people who don't know what I'm talking about probably don't care enough like to listen to a whole thing about it but I think they err sometimes on I think you have to be cautious with with opinions that you are willing to give a platform to um, and and it's not to say I think that should only be one side I just think you should be cautious about um, what those people are saying and you should be mindful of the impact it can have in a certain platform um, and I don't think they have brought a level of diligence uh, that that, and but it was one of those lingering things. And then honestly, I think when they sent out the thing about that, yeah, we're taking recipes out of here, out of your subscription, and it's not cheap. I, I will say that it's like Washington Post is like a fourth of the cost, mm-hmm. and you get pretty much unlimited. And the Post is kicking ass in a lot of ways, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was one where, yeah, if we just need a national slash global news source, mm-hmm. and do we really need more than one? Um, but again, that's not, it, the times I, I find myself conflicted is the mm. best way to put it. I think they are doing some of the best content, news content. Mm-hmm. I think they are still absolutely crushing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. It's just in some of the areas, but it's big. Yeah. It's a big media Goliath to try to keep pointed yeah. in good directions. I'll, I'll also mention that you know Sarah was talking about the different revenue streams that uh, their new TV show Modern Love, which is going to premiere oh, on Amazon yeah. uh, and is based on both the weekly column and their podcast, is one of the best things that I've seen this fall mm-hmm. uh, and is quite good. So that's just again an ex- uh, uh, an example of kind of what Meredith has done mm-hmm. in in finding new revenue streams. Now she's not necessarily the one who you know they they handed it off to somebody else who kind of created that, um, but. Uh, Uh, But it was a really smart move on on their part. And I think, too, when you look at the media landscape, I mean, I mean, I I can't imagine us thinking about where all a newspaper brand would be in our lives. Um, Like you could see it on the TV screen. You can see it. You can have a podcast and it be from The Times or a cooking app from The Times. So when you think about what it means to be a media brand and where consumers kind of want to see that media brand, I feel like The New York Times is really at the forefront of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm glad we were able to give it to Meredith this year. So, in terms of uh, publishing, so mm-hmm. uh, who else we got in there? The hot um, pubs this year. So I think something that was different for um, the publishing category in particular this year, um, we opened it up to digital properties as well as magazine properties to compete in each category outside of a few of them, and I think that's a reflection of what the magazine industry looks like today. It was kind of necessary when you're thinking about spectacular sports journalism. Um, Does a magazine necessarily come to mind? So that's something that we ran into this year. For that particular category, it went to The Athletic, um, which has seen pretty amazing subscription growth this year. But our top award, Hottest Magazine of the Year, went to New York Magazine. And funny enough, this was awarded before the merger was announced with Vox Media. 
But we really. What do you think of that? I mean, I don't think we've talked about it on the show. What, what do you think yeah, of that? Yeah, I don't think we have either. I think it'll be interesting to see how it works out. Um, <laughs> that was like such a <laughs> such a carefully parsed answer. Well, I mean, okay, so theoretically, right? If you have shared resources um, and you are able to share more insight into your audience with brands, theoretically, it'll make for a better, more insightful media brand. I think where they're going to run into some issues is when you merge two companies together, there's going to be some consolidation. They've said there's not going to be any editorial layoffs, but they haven't really talked about what's going to happen on the ad sales side of things. And when you're thinking about the folks who are going to know what they're selling, that's going to be where where they cut first to have the most overlap. So I think New York media and Vox Media in particular, their audiences make sense. They have pretty strong brands that I think are going to be able to stand alone. When you take a look at the other two mergers that have been announced in recent days, uh, I don't think it's it's not necessarily apples to apples in this case. But of the three, uh, I think I'm most excited to see what comes out of New York and, and Vox. All right. Well, I definitely encourage everyone to check out the publishing hot list because uh, there's a lot more in there. Uh, but let's move to digital. Uh, digital is kind of the most open-ended, uh, and, but it always has some of my favorites. Like we've got some gadgets in there. We've got, but the, I think the one that, and these are kind of lumped together a bit. Uh, well, so usually we talk about hot, hottest app. Uh, in this case, it's kind of resurgent app is is represented in there, and then also hottest app. Not to spoil any surprises <laughs> here, but like TikTok's the hottest app, right? Like it was nice to have a year. Surprised there. Yeah, it's like nice to have a year where there's an obvious answer um, because there hasn't been like a super hot app for several years. It's mm-hmm. been same ones, just still banging it on Instagram. It's kind of refreshing too to have something new to watch. And I mean, I know everyone says TikTok's not the new Vine, which I agree with. Rest in peace, Vine. You were the best. It was the best. We miss you. (laughs) We do miss, yeah, we miss Vine. But TikTok is fun, and it gives us a little bit of what, like, I think people miss from Vine. Like, those just short videos that leave you saying, like, what just happened? I need to watch that again. And then, like, cracking up afterwards. I think my my thing with TikTok is always that it's like it's great to watch the best of TikTok, like the stuff that gets shared on over other platforms. And then if you dive too deep into it, it's, it's kind of you know, like YouTube. You got to wait for someone to recommend something because if yeah. you just if you just like throw yourself in the deep end, it's like I need curation. Yeah, I can say that I've never gone on TikTok or anything and like looked and just watched videos. Every video I've watched is something that somebody else recommended or someone shared on Twitter, like, this is the weirdest TikTok I've ever seen. And I'm like, well, i got to see that. <laughs> so that's usually how I find my TikTok videos. While we're here stalking uh, recommendations for TikTok, though, I implore literally everyone to check out the Washington Post TikTok app. So good. Which What's the name? Dave Jorgensen? Oh, yeah. Yes. It is They hilarious. are really funny. <laughs> I sometimes I'll pull up at work and I will just howl. Yeah. <laughs> They're so I just picture him going around, which is literally what he does, going around to these very serious journalists and just being like, I'm going to need you to wear this cow skull. You know? <laughs> right. just like, and you can just picture him be like, as soon as he walks up, I just picture them sighing. and just being like, like, oh, great. It's our you, turn today, huh? What do you need? Um, so while we're on TikTok, uh, Jason, who is the uh, digital creator of the year? So our digital creator of the year is uh, a 17-year-old named Lauren Gray, who is the most followed user on TikTok. Um, she has 33.8 million fans, and she has more than 2 billion hearts, which is like which is the TikTok version of likes, and she is the TikTok influencer. Uh, so, you know, I feel like every year we 
um, we kind of ping pong between somebody who has you know created something uh, something new. I think last year we did they maybe the one of the creators of Fortnite, and then uh, or a kind of influencer on like whatever the big platform happens to be. So the, the, this is this is an influencer year, but uh, but you know the, this is a platform that even though we were just talking about Washington Post has figured out an interesting way to be on it. You know a lot of brands now suddenly want to be involved in TikTok, and everybody's figuring out how to crack that code. And uh, Lauren Gray is somebody that everybody is lining up to be in business with because she has, um, you know, she she's the one who's made this platform work for her. And the interesting thing with her is that she actually initially used TikTok to create videos for other platforms. And then eventually was like, well, actually, maybe I should just like stay on TikTok and make mm-hmm. that work for me. So she has, um, you know, she she's really turned this into what she hopes will be the beginning of a career that's not just TikTok related. She signed a record deal last year, and she wants to make music a bigger part of her future. Classic. But um, this has been, you know, the year of TikTok, and it's certainly represented in multiple categories this year on our digital hot list. So I've I've jumped right past our digital executive of the year which is, again, another bit of a flashback moment, but for a good reason. Uh, who wants to introduce us to our digital executive of the year? Sure, I can. Um, it's Evan Spiegel of Snapchat, which... Back uh, again. Yeah, back again. Former <laughs> Adweek cover star Evan Spiegel from like five years ago. <laughs> yes, because like, I guess similar to Friends in this themed issue, um, is they're having a bit of a resurgence, and um, they've seen about 90% growth um, in the last two quarters to like all 13 and 24 year old users, um, which is more than what they're getting in Facebook and Instagram. So hmm. I, this resurgence is passing me by, but I am al- as always, I'm way too old to be part of any yeah. uh, cultural trend. You didn't have to agree quite so quickly. <laughs> but like, the- well, I meant for me too. I deleted, <laughs> I actually deleted Snapchat off my phone when they did their, um, when they changed like the user like the the back end of their app i was so overwhelmed by it that i was just like i have to delete this i can't i don't even know how to use it anymore yeah to me i think when instagram i liked the this is such a nerd reason to like a platform but snapchat i had no real interest to message people because i had nine million options Mm -hmm. and i had no parents to hide anything from so like for me for me the big thing as someone who had been in social since you know 07 was that you could finally tell a story chronologically mm-hmm. which sounds so kind of lame but you look at TikTok right about how you can tell a story in this kind of nice structured way uh, Snapchat was the first time where you could say watch slide one now watch slide two versus every social platform up till then had been reverse chronological order you see the last tweet first mm-hmm. and now threading and a few things have kind of changed that but typically that's just how social worked. Mm-hmm. So as someone who likes using those platforms to tell stories, I loved that about Snapchat, but I did not love that the entire user experience was counterintuitive yeah. and and almost intentionally so to drive away the olds like mm-hmm. me, you know. And and so when Instagram blatantly copied and pasted it, I was like, cool. Yeah, like, that's, that's kind fine. of exactly what I did. I pivoted to Instagram stories and I kind of have just doubled down in that. I'm also like the less apps I have on my phone, the better, personally. So I feel like if I had one that does both anyway, I, I was kind of content there. So what's behind the Snapchat comeback? 
I think it's staying power. Um, I, I'm going to give another personal antidote, but my brother, who is solidly a Gen Zer, um, will not communicate with me in any other way except over Snapchat, and that's how he talks to all of his friends, and that's how he talks to my mother and, and dad, um, which is so backward. He won't respond to a text message. It has to be over Snapchat. But I think it speaks to how people fall in love with platforms and they get comfortable speaking in those environments. Um, and so I think it's captured a generation and they're comfortable using it and they're going to continue to do so. And also notably, they are one of the few platforms that have escaped a lot of the scrutiny that like fa- Facebook mm-hmm. and Google and um, they've, mm-hmm. they've really managed to, and again, whether it's dodging a bullet or being lucky or just being you know smarter about kind of how they operate, um, you know, a lot of the brand safety issues that um, that other platforms are struggling with is something that Snapchat has managed to avoid. And, um, you know, I think in this, uh, in, in, in our item, we talk about how the um, the the shares of Snap were at f- going for five dollars at the end of of twenty eighteen, and uh, which is you know less than a year ago, and it's just kind of amazing this resurgence that they've had. Um, you know, I think about that with TikTok as well. Talking before, I mean, my daughter, you know, back when when TikTok was musically two years ago, everybody yeah, was into that. it, and then they went away. And both of these platforms have managed to attract people back, which, especially in this day and age, when when you just kind of move on to like the next new thing, it, it's it's pretty amazing that both have managed to have this staying power that um, a lot of people would say is would not be likely in this this time. Mm. What else we got? I know in what do we call it? Hottest gadget of the year. Mm-hmm. We had AirPods. Yep. Which is something that I think we take for granted. It's one of those, and especially uh, the I'm the only one in this room who's not based in New York. So it's easiest when you're in Manhattan or when you're in San Francisco or L.A. to like just these things are everywhere. I think you notice it when you're in a mid-market uh, like I am, and then you visit a major area, and suddenly everyone's wearing AirPods. Mm-hmm. Everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am not. I'm still just struggling by on what I've st- I'm still yeah. using like the, uh, the earbuds with the with the adapter plugged into the bottom <laughs> oh I have that too yeah <laughs> oh, I like it because I can plug it into my laptop too yeah like I like a multi-purpose tool but uh, man you know I was even talking to Apple about this uh, when they put out really their first ad I mean pretty much uh, a few months ago for AirPods like this was not you think of the well, I don't know this again dating myself but you think of the the iPod right the iPod was driven by advertising like great advertising, but it was that that silhouettes campaign made the iPod a cultural item. Mm-hmm. I don't. That's not what happened with AirPods. Like, and and Apple has come what somewhat admitted to me that it it blew past their expectations. You know, they thought, oh, people we hope will like this. We sure spent a lot of time and effort developing you know this really high quality earpiece that's not going to fall out. But for it to become a cultural phenomenon, but again, it's a cultural phenomenon in a way that doesn't really impact much. So it's not like everyone suddenly is, can't stop talking about it. It's just once you use it, you can't imagine not using it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the numbers that they have given are pretty astounding. So it's projected to uh, there's projected to sell 55 million this year and 110 million in 2021. I mean that's. Uh, and 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 they they sold thirty five million last year. So as big as it is now, you know they're expecting to at least double that in the coming years. There's wow. there's a lot of like I don't know what the term for this is poor shaming I guess uh, going on right now with teens and and younger people. 
Um, and it's something as a parent I'm, I'm seeing more and more often. It's happening with, uh, with AirPods where basically if you don't have AirPods, like other kids will just be like, you're poor. Mm. Like, I, why, why don't you have AirPods? Or if you try to get like, this is actually a better audio quality. It's like when Beats was blowing up, right? And they mm-hmm. weren't that great of headphones. Like there were much yeah. better headphones. But if you didn't have Beats, you weren't mm-hmm. cool. And now I worry about kids because it's little things like Fortnite characters. Like if you use a default character and you don't buy the upgraded yeah, yeah. cosmetics, then you're poor. And I had to have a talk with my kids about this, not because they've done said anything like that. My kids don't care about any of that stuff. But I said, hey, if you ever see another kid being bullied about that, like step in and just be like, that's a garbage thing. But it is something where, again, none of this is a negative about the product or about Apple. I just think it's interesting that culturally that's kind of what it's like. You either use this or you're just Mm -hmm. poor. And it's like, no. There's a range of options available, actually. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Well, I feel like every generation kind of has something like that, too. Any fad. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we were talking about Lisa Frank the other day. Coach bags, too. Coach bags. Remember? Yeah. Yeah. Like in high school, if you didn't have a coach or Prada bag. Or those like Adidas slip-on sandals. Oh, oh, yeah. So uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- for me, and it's not like a specific thing. I was in junior high when it, when shoes became expensive, when Nike Air and like all this was really blowing up, and shoes were suddenly a one hundred plus dollar mm-hmm. purchase. Mm-hmm. And I did not grow up in a wealthy family. Like we don't, we did not spend a lot of money, especially on shoes. And I was perfectly happy with what I had. But I got like, I mean, bullied not in the sense like beat up or anything, but got made fun of a lot. Because I just had some Gennaro, who I don't, who knows, like I didn't care, like some generic brand of sneakers. Kids made fun of me, like certain kids, you know, mm-hmm. again, just the kind who would probably make fun of you for, for wearing AirPods, not having AirPods. Um, and I didn't necessarily care. I didn't love it, but it's not like it, you know, ruined my life or anything. But then I, my parents bought me a nicer pair of shoes just as like a nice thing. And I started wearing those. Same kids made fun of me. Yeah, like, oh, look at the poor kid. Something. Like, went and blew all his money. On good. I was like, yeah, you're just going to be jerks. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, ha, ha, you tried. Like, oh, okay. This podcast going in some very personal spaces. <laughs> we're going to work through some <laughs> this stuff This is a together. therapy session today. <laughs> <laughs> well, what other, have we omitted any great categories that we should talk about on digital? Um, I think the song of the summer we should probably Oh, mention. absolutely. Yeah, the hottest digital obsession with uh, Little Nas X's Old Town Road, which like, how do you not? I, I, I was, <laughs> do you <come> not? On. <laughs> when I was on vacation, I was driving in California with my brothers, and we were driving through this small mountain town, just blasting Old Town Road. And we were, I was just like, this is like peak vacation right now. It felt yeah. so great. It's such a fun song. Uh, I really love the remix video that has um, the Area 51 references. Here for the memes. I loved it. Yeah, which of these 75 videos? <laughs> yeah, you, yeah exactly. <laughs> the, um, like, it, 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 I noticed the other day, and I can't remember if this was ironic or not, but, like, a friend of mine, uh, Marianne uh, from from Droga 5, who, who is moving to a new job cross-country, uh, she was asking people for playlists on Spotify to to help make the drive. She's moving from New York to L.A. Um, and so she's like, anyone's got any playlists? And I had one, like a traveling playlist that I sent to her. And then and then she sent me a note saying, oh, it's so great. Thank you. And then I was like, I don't remember what I put on. Because like, you make it for yourself. You don't think yeah. about other people listening to it. <laughs> I'm making like the third track is Old Town Road. <laughs> and I don't know if I put it on just for my kids or to be ironic or what. But I was like... <laughs> 
do I stand by that choice? I think I stand by that choice. You gotta like a, stand by it. Yeah. A year from now, I'll be like, really, David? Like, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> oh, you did that. All right. Every playlist is a is a little snapshot of the moment, right? <laughs> How you were feeling? What was on? It's your 2019 mood. All right. Well, I encourage everyone to check out our hot list, all three lists, uh, and big thanks to everybody at Adweek who pitched in on that. It is a big old project. Uh, that with a lot going on. This, by the way, is our 150th episode. Uh, yay! Woo! Woo! Yay! Yeah. Um, but uh, every 50 episodes or so, we like to stop and take questions from you, the listener. So drop us a note at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com with your questions. It can be about advertising or digital or anything we've talked about or what you got bullied about when you were in junior high. We love hearing it all. We're here to listen. <laughs> We're here to help work through it. Uh, and uh, But, yeah, no, any questions you have about the industry or about the stuff we cover. And we'll bring on experts. We'll go find people. We'll find people who have the answers. So podcast at adweek.com. Uh, and uh, we, I, I think I am not going to be on next week's show. I'll be traveling for a bit. Um, but I'll be back uh, soon. And we'll, do, we'll tackle everybody's questions uh, as soon as I get back. And we've got a lot of big stuff coming. We've got so much uh, coming in the next few weeks. Adweek's 40th uh, anniversary issue is coming up very soon. Uh, the magazine's turning 40. We're all very excited. And uh, we're going to be looking back at 40 years of advertising and kind of how the industry changed. There's some really cool content going in there and so much other stuff. Jason, we've got to have you back soon. We haven't even talked like fall TV or anything, man. There's so much. Yep. Get you back soon. Yep. All right. Uh, our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Chris Ahrens with production assistance from Josh Rios and edited by Lane McGivney. Uh, if you've not already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners discover the show and they just make us feel better. Well, most of them. Uh, and uh, yeah, drop us a note anytime. Podcast at adweek.com. I'm David Griner with Adweek. We will be back next week. Welcome to Elevating the Human Experience from Deloitte Digital. It makes sense if you think about it. Brands that are able to create experiences build connections. Strong connections create loyalty, and loyalty drives business results. Amelia Dunlop, head of customer strategy and applied design, Deloitte Digital, explains how brands are making those connections, successfully elevating the human experience, and building value. Have you ever been having a truly bad day? Were you just a sour, foul mood? And almost by accident, you found someone smiling at you, and you couldn't help but smile back? And how that simple smile softened the scowl on your face, relaxed the tightness of your shoulders, and changed the arc of your day? I am fascinated by the way in which kindness begets kindness. It's intuitive, deeply felt, and what it means to be human. We know that treating each other as humans is the right thing to do, the thing that each of us would most want. But at Deloitte Digital, we asked ourselves, does elevating the human experience actually add value to organizations? Everyone talks about experience, but could we quantify it? That's why we created a new formula for growth, the human experience quotient, which combines the customer experience, the workforce experience, and the partner experience, all raised to the human values. The fascinating findings are that organizations who have alignment across the values of their customers, workforce, and partners are twice as likely to be the highest performers in their respective industry over a three-year period. Isn't that awesome? Being human isn't just a good thing to do. It's the right thing to do to fuel growth. Want to learn more about elevating the human experience? Visit DeloitteDigital.com slash US slash EHX for more insight. 
Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.